Tonight we're going to begin our study of the epistle to the Romans. And we're going to try to take this study and pursue it this year and complete our study of the epistle to the Romans during the course of this year. Now tonight what I want to do is two things. First, I would like to study the background or the setting to the book of Romans. And then secondly, I would like to study the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1, which is called the Salutation. Now, first of all, we're going to look at the setting, and we're going to look at that quickly, the background or setting to the epistle to the Romans. I think you know that Paul wrote 13 epistles that are in our New Testament. If Paul did not write the book of Hebrews, and I don't suppose he did, Paul is the author of 13 epistles. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. He wrote the book of Galatians, probably, between his first and second missionary journey. Second, he wrote 1 and 2 Thessalonians on his second missionary journey from the city of Corinth. Third, on his third missionary journey, he wrote 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. He wrote 2 Corinthians from the province of Macedonia, northern Greece. And he wrote the book of Romans on the third missionary journey from the city of Corinth. Then he went back to Jerusalem after the third missionary journey, was, take, was put in prison for two years, was taken to the city of Rome and placed in a prison. And there in prison for two years in Rome, he wrote what are called the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The book of Acts ends with Paul in prison, but we believe he was released. And after he was released from prison, he was free for about uh, four years. During that four years, he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. Then Nero set fire to the city of Rome. When they picked up the arsonists, they all coughed up one name, Nero. So Nero looked around for a convenient scapegoat to blame that fire on, and the most convenient scapegoat were Christians. So the long arm of the Roman law reached all across the Adriatic and across the Aegean to a city called Troas, laid hold on Paul, brought him all the way back to Rome, and put him down in the old Mamertine prison. This time, his doom was sealed. In his first Roman imprisonment, it was the Jews of Palestine that preferred charges against Paul, and they never showed up, so Paul was set free. This time, it was the Roman government that preferred charges, and the charges treason, and there was no chance that Paul was going to get free this time. So probably 67 AD, they took Paul outside the city and beheaded Paul. Paul wrote 13 epistles. Galatians, the first one. Second Timothy, the last one. Now the occasion of the epistle to the Romans is given to us in Romans chapter 15. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 15 and read several verses in Romans 15. Matter of fact, we're going to read a rather extensive one. Romans chapter 15, and we'll begin at verse 14 because this gives us the background to the writing of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Paul writes, Romans 15, 14. 
And I myself also am persuaded of you, brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind, because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. Verse 18, verse 19, verse 20. Verse 20. Yea, so I have strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it's written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming unto you. Since you've already had the gospel preached to you, I've been much hindered from coming to you. But now, having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey unto Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you my journey to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now, now, I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It has pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When, therefore, I have performed this, that is, when I've taken this collection from, from Corinth back east to Jerusalem, and I seal to them this fruit, I will come by you on the way to Spain. And I'm sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the events to which Paul refers here. And we might put them down in six or seven steps. Paul planned his evangelistic campaign. Paul laid long-range plans to evangelize the great strategic cities of the Roman Empire. First principle Paul laid down was this. Don't go where the gospel is already preached. Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles, and he was called to preach in virgin territory where the gospel had never been heard. That's why he had as yet not gone to the city of Rome. So the first part of his campaign, or should we say the first campaign, was to evangelize Asia Minor and the Aegean coast. So in three missionary journeys, missionary journey number one, Central Asia Minor, missionary journey number two, uh, Northern and Southern Greece, and missionary journey number three, Western Asia Minor, Ephesus, Colossae, the cities of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. In those three great missionary journeys, Paul evangelized the great strategic cities of Western Asia Minor and of Macedonia and Achaia, which together we call Greece today. You know, I, I doubt if many Christians realize that the church was stronger the first 300, 400 years in Western Asia Minor. We call it Turkey. Today it's Muslim territory, but then it was the strongest outpost of Christianity. The strongest churches were found here. So in the first part of his campaign, of his tactic, Paul evangelized the great strategic cities of the Aegean Sea, all of Western Asia Minor and all of Macedonia and Achaia. Now he's finished with that. 
Now he's ready to embark on the second campaign. And that second campaign is Spain. Not Rome, not Italy. The gospel's already been called, uh, carried to Rome and Italy. Paul's principle is don't go where the gospel is already gone. So Paul's second campaign is going to be over in Spain and Western Europe. And tradition has it that he perhaps got there, may have even gotten as far as the southern part of Great Britain. We don't know. That's dubious. But anyway, that was Paul's plan. But, but, Paul said, I've got to do one thing before I come. And that is this. The saints down in Judea are very poor. They suffer from two things. First of all, that part of the country was often hit by famine. And the poor saints down there were desperately poor. Secondly, if they were Christians, and obviously they'd be Jews, they would suffer from economic pressure. And their plight was desperate. Paul was always concerned about the unity of the body of Christ. He was also concerned about people who were hungry and needed help. So Paul raised an offering in these strategic cities in Greece, Philippi, Berea, Macedonia, the province of Macedonia, and then to Corinth. Matter of fact, he wrote two whole chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and said, get the collection ready so that when I come, I don't have to be troubled about passing the plate all the time. I hope all the deacons read carefully 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You know, some deacons get real nervous when the preacher talks about money. Let me tell you something. Paul talked about money. Spent two chapters. He said, take all those collections so when I get down there, I don't have to be troubled about taking collections. And so Paul came down, and it was all ready. They had already had it prepared. He said that in the passage which we read. So Paul said, now my plans are these. First, I'm going to take this collection back to Jerusalem, to the poor saints, to the churches back there. Second, I'm going to make plans to go to Spain. Third, on the way to Spain, I'm going to stop in Rome and visit with you. I've always wanted to visit you. I've always wanted to see my Christian friends in Rome. And I plan on my way to Spain to stop and to visit you. Well, that happened, but not quite the way Paul planned, did it? Paul got back to Jerusalem, and they put him down in prison. And this time, the Roman government paid his flight. The Roman government paid for his trip to Rome. And they shipped him. He didn't think he'd get there that way. He didn't even dream of getting there that way. But they put him on a boat and sent him to Rome and sent him there free and put him down in, in the Praetorian Guard. I spoke Saturday night on the blessing of adversity, Philippians 1, 12 to 20. They put him down in the Praetorian Guard, which was the SS troops of Nero, the elite guard. And Paul could have never gotten there otherwise. But because he was put down in the Praetorian Guard, he was able to witness to Caesar's household. That means his servants and the tutors of his children and the musicians and all the slaves. And he was able to minister to all of these 
And we know from Philippians chapter 4 that many of them were saved because Paul wrote, they of Caesar's household greet you. And many were saved. So Paul got to Rome eventually. Now that's the background to this epistle. Paul writes it. He's the author of this epistle. He writes it to the church at Rome. And in it he explains first his delay and then his plans to come. How did this church begin? Nobody really knows. We know from Acts chapter 2 that there were some Jews from Rome at the feast of Pentecost on the day that the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost to baptize all believers into the body of Christ. At Pentecost, there were several thousand Jews who listened to Peter and the other apostles. And when they preached, when Peter preached, 3,000 were saved. Some from Alexandria, some from uh, what we would call Iran and Iraq today. The Jews had colonies all over the world. And there were some from Rome. And those Jews were saved and they went back to Rome. And when they got back to Rome, they formed a small house church where they elected elders and deacons and took collection and observed the ordinances and preached the gospel and developed other churches. Also, there were a lot of traveling businessmen. Rome was the heart of the empire. And there were traveling businessmen always going to Rome. And then military personnel were transferred out of Rome and back to Rome. And no doubt, men like Cornelius, saved down in Palestine, were transferred back to Rome, but they had become Christians while they were down in Palestine. And so out of this, a church arose. We don't know exactly how it was formed, but it was formed probably in, in some manner such as this. So this church that Paul had never visited grew and became one of the strongest churches in the Roman Empire because it was the church at the, uh, at the um, capital city of the empire. Now Paul wrote this epistle from the city of Corinth, which is way down in southern Greece. He wrote it at the end of his third missionary journey wrote it in early 57 A.D. at the end of his third missionary journey. And he wrote it uh, uh, probably for four reasons. Paul wrote it probably for four reasons. First, a personal reason. And I'll take a few minutes and look at these. Paul wrote this epistle to the Romans probably for four reasons. The first reason is what we might call a personal reason. That is, Paul is explaining his plans, and he does so in Romans chapter 15. He explains his plans. I plan to come to you on the way to Spain. Secondly, he explains his delay, why he doesn't come now. The people, the believers in Rome say, well, how come Paul hasn't come to us yet? He's gone to Philippi. He's gone to Corinth. How come he doesn't come to Rome? What's his answer to that? What is his answer? God has called me to preach the gospel where nobody else has ever gone. The gospel's already been to Rome, so that's why I have not as yet come to you. So for personal reasons, Paul wrote this epistle. Secondly, the second reason for which he wrote it is what I call a theological reason, and that is to provide a full statement of the gospel 
he believed and preached. Paul wrote this to explain the full statement of the gospel that he believed and that he preached. That's what I would call a theological reason. Now, you know, Paul's normal method was to catechize believers. Some churches still have catechumen classes. The Anglican church, the Episcopal church, still has a catechumen class. Some Presbyterian churches still have catechumen classes. That's not, by the way, a bad idea. And a catechumen class is a class in which uh, uh, prospective church members, young Christians, that is, young converts, prospective church members would come regularly and study the facts about the life and death and resurrection of Christ and study Bible doctrine. And after they passed those catechumen classes, then they were admitted into the church as church members. And many churches still do that today. Now, wherever Paul went, Paul did that. He catechized believers. He set up catechumen classes because most of the people that were in those classes were people whom he had personally won to the Lord Jesus. But here was a church in which there were believers who had been Christians years and years longer than Paul had. Well, I wouldn't say years and years longer because Paul was converted about 33, 34 A.D. But here are Christians who have been Christians for 20, 25 years. You don't think Paul's going to sit them down on the front row and teach them ABC. That had been an insult. So how was he going to do that? Well, he did it by writing this epistle. And from this epistle, my friend, we get some idea of how Paul conducted those catechumen classes. We would say, don't study Romans until you get down the line about 10 years as a Christian. Paul got into it the first six months. And the way this letter is written is probably the way Paul handled some of his catechumen classes. Third reason for which Paul wrote it is what I would call a polemical reason. P-O-L-E-M-I-C-A-L. Polemical. P-O-L-E-M-I-C-A-L. Polemical. Now, the Greek word for war, W-A-R, is P-O-L-E-M-O-S. And a polemical writing is a writing that was written to answer and attack heresy. In the second century, the first part of the third century, we have certain kinds of Christian literature. Some of them are called apologetic literature, and they're written to defend against the attacks, the intellectual attacks of pagans. There was another kind of literature. It was called the polemical literature. And the polemical literature was written to attack, to answer the Jehovah Witnesses of that day called Arians. And the anti-Trinitarians of that day called liberals. And there were many churches in that day, even in 1 John chapter 2, that denied the Trinity and that denied the deity of Jesus, and denied the atonement of Christ. They were members of the church, inside the church. John wrote against them. Peter wrote against them. 
And in the second, third century, they wrote what was called polemical writings to answer these kind of things. You know, the theology of the Jehovah Witness is not anything new. Really, there's nothing new under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes said. And that's why I believe a young student who's studying for the ministry ought to study the history of Christian doctrine. Because if he learns the anti-Trinitarian heresy in the 3rd and 4th century and the anti-Christological heresy, Arianism and Origen, these kind of heresies, he'll be able to answer the heresies that cropped up today. I had Jehovah's Witness come to my home a few years ago. And he started explaining my doctrine. I said, oh, you are an Arian, aren't you? Now, he didn't know what that was. He didn't know whether to thank me or to cuss me. See? And I tell you, he could have done both. <laughs> but he, I said, you're an Arian. Exactly what he was. Exactly what he was. The heresy that's represented by a church down on the riverfront in Memphis is an old, ancient heresy started by Arius, which denied that Jesus was God. And most of the heresies we face today are ancient heresies. They just crop up under different names. They crop Why do you say why they have a different name? Because they, you know, just like a product comes under a different name, and they sell it for a little more. So these heresies come up under different names. Paul wrote to answer some misrepresentations of the Christian faith. Now, there are two basic ones, and we'll get into this later on. But all I'd like to ask you to do is to look up here, at which you know is a favorite, very favorite term of mine. When I was in this Bible conference, uh, I got up to speak, and they all, virtually everybody said out, out, we were real free and easy. They all said to me, right at the very beginning, please look up here. <laughs> because that's an old favorite formula of mine. Well, in, you know, Paul had to always steer between Basilla and Charybdis, between a rock and a hard place. Paul's doctrine of the grace of God was misrepresented two ways. On the one hand, there were those who said, a man is saved by faith in Christ plus circumcision, plus keeping the law, plus the seven sacraments plus joining the church, plus being baptized. That's legalism. On the other hand, uh, there's that extreme that said, well, if a man's saved by faith alone, then he can go out and live like the devil. He can go out and indulge in every sin. It won't make any difference. If he's saved by faith alone apart from works, then he can be saved and go out and live like the devil. Not at all. So Paul wrote, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved, through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. What's Paul's formula? Not of works. That's against legalism. Unto good works. That's against libertarianism, licentious. Paul's steer between. Now, Paul's going to deal with that in the book of Romans. Then he deals also with another problem, and that is the problem of Jewish unbelief. How is it that Israel rejected the Messiah 
for whom they have been looking for almost 2,000 years. Paul's going to spend three chapters. Polemical reason. Then the fourth reason that Paul wrote this epistle, the first is personal. The second is theological. The third reason is polemical. And the fourth reason for which Paul wrote this epistle is what I would call missionary or evangelistic. Missionary. Paul wrote it for a missionary purpose. Paul planned to go to Spain. That's a big undertaking. Paul didn't have a big church to support him. He wasn't associated with any missionary agency. Paul went out by himself. And he <clears throat> depended upon the, on the Lord's people to help him and support him in, in his missionary endeavors. Now, Paul's going to go to Spain. He had never been to Spain before. See? And you know what it's like when I went to India? You could ride ahead and make a make a reservation in the India Holiday Inn, <laughs> kind of a flea bag over there, not and so on, whatever it was. And he didn't have anything like that. Yet they had, they had, uh, they had hostels in these. They had those inns, but uh, uh, historians are clear to tell us that most of those inns and hostels were nothing more than houses of prostitution. The man was traveling as, was a Christian, had a hard time finding a place to stay. That's why Christians opened their homes to traveling Christian businessmen and businesswomen so they wouldn't have to stay in places like that. Paul's going to Spain. He didn't have any financial resources, so he wrote to encourage these Christians in Rome to help him and support him in the evangelization of Spain. Then another thing along the same line is this. You know, an army never likes to have a long base of operations, does it? An army wants to have a close base of operations. You want to, if you're going to fight against a southeastern country, you don't want to have your base of operations in Southern California. You want to locate it as close as possible, yet far enough to be safe. Paul didn't want to have a base of operations for Spain way down in Antioch. He needed a closer base. Of operations. And no doubt Paul thought that Rome would be an excellent base of operations for the evangelization of Western Europe. Now, we don't have Western Europe on the map. Can you see it there? If you do, you better see the eye doctor because it's not up there. But here's uh, Spain and here's France. And no doubt, you know, Paul dreamed great dreams. Paul visioned great visions. And he finished evangelizing all this area, and Rome was already evangelized in Italy, so now he's going on to Western Europe. But he needs support, and he needs a base of operations, so he writes this church and tells them what his plans are, and like a good man, you know, he doesn't tell them what he's going to do when he gets there, but he's going to ask them to help him in the support of his missionary endeavor. So, with these things in mind, Paul sat down, his host was a man by the name of Gaius. And Gaius had a secretary. And so, a male secretary. So Gaius loaned to Paul his male secretary named Tertius. And Paul dictated the epistle to the Romans to Tertius. Tertius wrote, as Paul dictated, guided, of course, by the Holy Spirit. 
And then, ladies, ladies, there was a woman lawyer, a lady lawyer, probably a lawyer, a lawyer of business woman. She's named, don't turn there now, named over in Acts, in, in Romans 16, that was going to Rome on business. So Paul took that scroll, not printed pages, but a scroll on which the epistle of Romans was written. Now, you men on the front row, you, you, you'd be kind of afraid to do this, wouldn't you? You'd say we have to get a man with an armored truck. But he went down to the seaport of Corinth, which is Centria. And they went down there, Paul and some of his friends, and that lady lawyer or business lady got on the boat. And when she left, Paul gave to her the most priceless book, perhaps, in the New Testament. And it was delivered by a lady all the way to the church at Rome. And we got it here today. If he had given it to a man, we might have had one book missing. <laughs> but he, no, I think of the providence that God had gotten there. Uh, he probably, if he given it to a man, he'd probably given it to a married man so that his wife would be sure it got there. But here was the epistle to the Romans delivered by a lady. Her name was Phoebe. And she was a businesswoman, perhaps a lawyer, traveling to Rome. And that was delivered there. Now, that's the background to the epistle to the Romans. May I suggest, may I suggest that this next week you read, with that in mind, read the whole epistle to the Romans. Simple. The background, which we just covered, is on the board. You see it? I just covered all of that, so we're not going to go back over it. But the outline to the book of Romans is a very simple outline. Uh, if we put it on a chart, it would run something like this. You're going to have it later on, so I'm going to get this introduction so you don't really need to write it down now. We've got an introduction, which is chapter 1, 1 to 17. Then we have a conclusion over at the end of the epistle, which starts at about 15, verse 8, and runs to about the last verse, I think it's 31 of chapter 16. Now that's an introduction and a conclusion. In between the introduction and the conclusion, we have the main body of the epistle. And there are three things, three main movements in the epistle. First, doctrinal. That's chapter 118 to chapter 839, doctrinal. The second part is what we may call historical. Historical. And that's chapter 9, 10, 11. That's the question of, of God's dealings with the Jews. Is God finished with the Jews? Our answer, my answer, because I think it's Paul's answer, is no. God is yet going to take up his dealings with the nation of Israel. So he deals with that in 9, 10, 11. And then the third part is what we may call practical. And that's chapter 12, verse 1, about chapter 15, verse 7 begins by saying, I beseech you, what's the next word? Now, I beseech you, therefore, therefore, because of all that's gone ahead, now I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's the outline of the epistle. Very simple. The introduction and the conclusion. Between the three, there are three, between these two, three major things. Doctrinal, historical, or practical, 
Or if we wanted three A, B, C, D, three Ds, we would have it this way. Doctrinal, dispensational, and duty. Doctrinal, doctrinal. How God saves men, including justification and sanctification and glorification. Doctrinal. Then secondly, dispensational. How God deals with the Jews. Chapter 9, the past. He shows them. Chapter 10, why they are now in unbelief. Chapter 11, how he will one day take up his dealings once again with the nation Israel. Dispensation. Then Romans 12, 1 to about chapter 15, verse 7, we call that duty. Duty. First of all, my, my responsibility, my responsibility to the local church, Romans 12. Second, my responsibility to the state, Romans 13. Third, my responsibility to a weaker brother in the local church, Romans 14, 1 to 15, 17. Very practical. Now, that's the thrust of the book. Now, let's take our Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter 1 and see if we can cover Romans 1, verses 1 to 7. And I would be tempted to say that we will not cover it all tonight. We may be able to get through it by 8.30, but if we do, it'll be 8.30 a.m. See, so, all right, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Now, in Romans chapter 1, we have the introduction to the epistle. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And in the introduction to the epistle, Romans 1, 1 to 17, we have three simple things. First, a salutation. Romans 1, 1 to 7. Is that on the outline? It is. You don't need to write it down there. It's on that little introductory statement in the outline. Romans 1, 1 to 7, the salutation, which he says, hello, salutation. Then secondly, beginning with verse 8, we have Paul's thanks and his relationship to the church. He explains why he's delayed coming to them. That's the second thing. And then third, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the theme of the epistle, the heart of the epistle in a certain sense. Romans 1, 16 and 17. So he got three things, salutation, thanksgiving, and the theme. Now, we're going to read the salutation. And you know, all Paul's salutations are, are framed the same way. We write a letter this way. Mr. John Jones, uh, 2485 Union Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee. Or we, not, if it's not formal, we just started. Dear John, so-and-so, uh, um, glad to see you yesterday. and Glad to know that you're feeling better. Trust to see you at the golf game or wherever it might be next week and so on. And then we sign, sincerely, Harry. We put our name last, put that name first. But not the letters of Paul say. Paul say they put the name first, Harry. And then they'd put to John. And then they'd put to may the God, may the God be pleased to bless you and give you health and strength. So they'd have the author, Harry. Then they'd have the addressing, John. 
Then they'd have this uh, prayer, benefaction from the pagan gods that they worshipped. Now, that was the normal course of letters. And Paul's epistles, the word epistle simply means a letter, and Paul's letters followed the normal course of letters of that day. And so every one of Paul's epistles, every one of Paul's letters, you're going to find first thing is what? Paul, Paul. And then he says an apostle of Jesus Christ or a bond slave of Jesus Christ, Paul. Then it says to the church at where? Well, Rome or Philippi or Colossae, wherever it is. And then third, what did he say? What was his benefaction? Grace and peace. Not all Paul's epistles. That's the way it went. Followed the formula common. Archaeology has uncovered thousands and thousands and thousands of letters written on papyrus, and they all follow this same form. Uh, I mentioned the students the other day because it was kind of interesting. The letter from a young lad about 19 years of age. He was from Alexandria, Egypt. He had been inducted, conscripted, inducted into the Roman army. And now he was up, I believe, in Greece. So he sat down. Um, after about three or four months, as boys do today, he had run out of money. <laughs> See, he'd run out of money. <clears throat> so he sat down and wrote home to his dad. And uh, it's a, a little short letter, but beautiful. And he said, uh, he named his name, Appian or whatever it was, to my father, may the gods be pleased to smile on you. Then he told how he was getting along in the army, told something, I think, about the food they were serving, what he was doing. Then he said two things. He said, first, uh, then, he, then he went on to say, Dad, uh, and I like this. He said, Dad, uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for all you've done for me while I was growing up. Then he went on to say two other things. Uh, mentioned that he needed a little financial help. Then he said, you know, before I left, I was dating. And he named the name the girl. Now, I said, I'm a long ways off. And when the heart, you know, when they get away, the heart tends to move around. So I said, you keep an eye. <laughs> you keep an eye on this. Uh, and he named the date, and then he closed out the letter. Now, Paul's letters followed the formula letters that day. That's why they're called epistles. You know what an epistle is? You thought it was the wife of an apostle. As the old saying goes, no. No, an epistle simply means a letter. An epistle is a letter. And Paul's letters followed the normal thing. Now, look at this. The only difference here is in this one is this. Since Paul had not been, if you look up here, since Paul had never visited this church and they didn't know him, Paul, in between Paul, which is in verse 1, and the church, which is in verse 7, and this is in verse 7, Paul put in verses 2 through 6, he tells of his calling to the gospel ministry, he tells them of the message which he preaches, and he tells them of the commission that God gave him. He hadn't been to this church, so he had to tell something about himself. So Paul spent about four or five verses telling them something about himself. What he's doing, he's introducing himself, just like you would walk in and give a business card to a man. So he walked in and gave a business card 
uh, to that person, so to speak, telling his background. Then he gave the salutation. Let's look at that now. Look at verse 1. Paul, what's the first word in your, in, in Romans 1? Paul, Paul, and he describes himself as servant, called an apostle, separated. Then skip down to verse 7. Paul to all that beware. There's the address to Rome. And then the last part of verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at, uh, at these three things just as you have it on your outline. First, on your outline, you have it there, the author, Paul. Second, the readers, Romans 1, 7a. And then third, the benefactor. All right, let's look first of all at the author. And under that, as you have it on your outline, three things. First, his position or his office. Verse 1, and he says three things about his position. He's a bond slave, he's an apostle by calling, and he's separated in the gospel. Then secondly, he tells about his message, its source, its preparation, and its subject. Then he tells about his commission, by whom we receive grace and apostleship. And then, secondly, he addresses the readers to all that be in Rome, and then he concludes by saying grace and peace. All right? Now, let's look at what Paul says here and see how far we can get along. First of all, the, uh, first of all he identifies himself, his position. Verse 1, Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, an apostle by calling, separated unto the gospel of God. Calls himself Paul. Now, you know his name was Saul. On the first missionary journey, Paul's name was changed from Saul to Paul. Now he may have had that all he may have had both names already. Why did he change his name from Saul to Paul? We don't know. Nobody does know. It may have been that Saul was his Jewish name. No doubt it was. And Paul was his Roman accultured name. For many years, Paul had worked among the Jews, and he used the name Saul. Now, on his first missionary journey, he's going to mission, he's going to minister to Gentiles. He's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So, he dropped the name Saul and took on the name Paul, which would communicate itself more effectively to Gentiles. Now, Paul says three things about himself in verse 1. He calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. He says, secondly, an apostle by calling. And third, he says he's separated unto the gospel. Look at those quickly. First, he's a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That indicates ownership, bond slave. The word for uh, the translated servant ought to be translated bond slave. There are two different Greek words that are translated servant in the New Testament. The one that Paul uses is... Uh, is uh, the word D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos. That's the noun. Came from the verb D-E-O, which means to buy. One of the words for prayer is deomai, which means to bind God to our souls by his promises. That's what prayer is. Deo, to bind. Now, a man that's bound is a doulos, a bond slave. In some translations, translated bond slave what Paul was doing here was um, acknowledging Christ's ownership of his life 
He was a bond slave. Jesus Christ owned him. And he was a bond slave, I like to say, by four rights. There were four chains that bound Paul to Jesus Christ. There were four rights that Jesus had to Paul. And if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, God owns you by four rights. What's the first one? Creation. He created you. So God owns you by the right of creation. Second one is providence. God sustains you. You wouldn't draw the next breath if God did not sustain you. You wouldn't find the food. You wouldn't have the atmosphere to breathe in unless God sustained you hour by hour. Now, God uses natural law. Yes, he does. Those are secondary causes. Natural law is secondary cause. But there'd be no natural law unless there were a lawgiver. And God sustains you by his providence. And my friend, uh, when the time that God determined eternity past comes for you to die, you'll die that hour. See, Job tells us that. The day, the day, the hour that I'm going to die is determined by God, was determined eternity past. I won't die a day ahead of time, and I won't die a day after that day. Now, that's no invitation to go out and commit suicide to trick God. No. God knows exactly the hour I'm going to die. God expects me to use my common sense to get enough sleep and to drive at the proper speed and to eat right and to keep healthy and to do all that I can to keep alive. But... When the hour of my time comes, then God will take me on hold. He owns me by the right of providence. Now, God owns everybody that way, doesn't he? God owns the atheist by those two rights. God owns the atheist by those two rights. That's why, may I say, kind of a Shakespearean aside, that's why Jesus Christ could give up his life and it wasn't suicide. But I can't take my life that suicide. What's the difference? Jesus owned the life he gave up. But if I take my life, I don't own that. That belongs to God. Even if I'm not a Christian, God owns me by the right of creation and by the right of providence. But as a Christian, he owns me by two more rights. They're both given in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. He owns me, third, by the right of redemption. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And I belong to God by the right of redemption. He bought me. He purchased me. And then, fourth, in the same verse, I belong to God by the right of habitation. The Holy Spirit, that's 1 Corinthians 6, 19. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Know you not that your body is the temple of, of the Holy Spirit? Then you know what he goes on to say? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And you are not your own. For you are bought with a price. See, he puts that you are not your own between two statements. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You're not your own. Backwards, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. Forward, I'm bought with a price. 
I call this habitation. Habitation. What's the old saying? Possession is, uh, yeah, well, in this case, possession is ten tenths of all. It's like eating. Now, if I've got a dollar in my pocket, belongs to Mr. Matthews, and I got it in my pocket, well, possession is nine-tenths of the law. But if I get a piece of his cake and eat it, it's ten-tenths. See? <laughs> Habitation. So the Holy Spirit inhabits me, and because he inhabits me, he possesses me. Then I ought to add one other thing. If, as a Christian, I've walked through Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, then God owes me by a fifth right. And that's the right of commitment. Commitment. I've given myself to him. This body belongs to him. Now, you know that's very practical. I could spend the next hour preaching on that. That means that uh, my time is not my own. So that when I sit down in front of television for three hours, I'll ask myself, is that a good use of God's time? And I get on the phone a long time, and especially if I gossip, I have to ask myself, is that a... Now, don't look at everybody else. See, I saw a lot of husbands looking over their wives. <laughs> if I get on the phone, I say, is that a good use of God's and if I read non, non-profitable, not salacious, I don't think you'd read salacious material, but non-profitable material, stuff that really won't count, I have to ask myself, is this a good use of God's time? My home belongs to God. My children, my children belong to God. My influence upon my children belongs to God. My plans belong to God. My choice of a mate in life, or whether I shall be married, that choice belongs to God. Paul gave that choice to God, remained single all the rest of his life. And all that I have as a Christian, and all that I possess, all my future, all my plans, all those belong to God. Now the question is, uh, am I recognizing the crown rights of Jesus Christ in my life? I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's ownership. Then the second thing that Paul says about himself is that he's an apostle by calling, not called to be an apostle, but an apostle by calling. And that underscores his authority. An apostle was a man who spoke with the authority of God. So Paul's ministry was invested with authority. He was an apostle by calling. And then the third thing that Paul says of himself is that he was separated under the gospel of Christ, or the gospel of God. That emphasizes his mission. See, each one of these emphasizes a thing. A bond slave, that emphasizes ownership. Apostle, that emphasizes authority. Paul cast out demons, but he did so by his apostolic authority. Paul healed, but he healed by his apostolic authority. Paul said to the church of Corinth, you get together, if that man doesn't repent, 
and under my authority, I'm as an apostle, I'm going to ask you to commit that man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, the body, so that his soul may be saved in the day of Christ. Now, I can't do that today. And nobody comes over television can do it today. That's apostolic authority. And Paul was an apostle by calling. And that underscores his authority. He spoke with the authority of God. Nobody does today. There are no prophets today in the biblical sense of the term. And there are no apostles today in the biblical sense of the term. Paul was. Now, Paul wasn't the 12th apostle. Mattathias was that. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But he was an apostle, and that speaks of his authority. And then the third thing emphasizes his mission. He separated unto the, uh, unto the gospel of God. The word separate is the word horizo. You know what we get from it? Horizon. That's that line drawn across there, horizon. So Paul was separated in the gospel of God. And that speaks of the mission to which he's committed. Bond slave and apostle separated under the gospel of God. Now, secondly, let's look very quickly at the message. I want to look at its outline. And then we'll stop and begin there next time. But don't close your books and rattle the pages right now, please. Secondly, he gives his message. In verses 1, the end of verse 1 through verse 4, I want you to see this. The next, next week we'll start here. His message is the gospel of God. And in, in describing his message, he says three things. First of all, he speaks of its origin. It's the gospel of God. It comes from God. Secondly, in verse 2, he speaks of its preparation. It was prepared for in the Old Testament. Then verses 3 and 4, he underscores its central subject, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Now let's read these verses and just merely touch on them. And then that's all we'll be able to do. We'll have to pick up at that next time. Now, get your Bibles. Don't write anything. I'm going to cover this next time. Just look at the Bible itself. He says three things about the gospel. And the verse one, he calls it the gospel of God. That means the gospel which comes from God. The gospel is theocentric, not anthropocentric. See, the main thrust of the gospel is not how to be well balanced on how to take care of my neuroses. The main thrust of the gospel is how to get right with God. How can a man be right with God? It's the gospel which comes from God and redounds to the glory of God. The gospel, may I remind you, which I've done over the years, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. The gospel doesn't tell me what I ought to to do, as maybe the psychiatrist does. The gospel tells me what God has already done to make me right for heaven. The gospel comes from God. Secondly, the preparation of the gospel. The gospel is good news, but it's not new news. Found in the Old Testament. Verse 2, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Is the gospel in the Old Testament? Yes, sir. Found there by prophecy 
Isaiah 53, for example, found there in time, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, found hundreds of places in the Old Testament. The gospel of Jesus Christ is in perfect harmony with the Old Testament. It was prepared for in the Old Testament. Then third, its central subject, verses 3 and 4. So is its subject. Jesus Christ. All right, look at verse 3 and 4. Who was concerning the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made, or the word ought to be translated, born, was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's his humanity. And declared, that word is demonstrated, proven, demonstrated, proven, the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Verse 3 is his humanity. Verse 4 is his deity. There are two key words with this I close. If you've got these two key verbs, you've got the Christ of the Bible. If you don't, you're in danger of having another Christ. What are the two key verbs? One in verse 3, one in verse 4. You ought to circle them and draw a line between them. In verse 3, Jesus Christ was what? Born, made, made. That's his human nature. Made, born. Verse 4, Jesus Christ was declared or demonstrated. Now, if you've got those two verbs, you've got the Christ of the Bible. Jesus Christ is both man and God. Man, verse 3, God, verse 4. What does the Bible say? Without the shedding of blood, Unless somebody dies for me, he cannot save him. An angel can't die and shed blood. God the Father cannot die and shed blood. God the Holy Spirit cannot die and shed blood. Only the second member of the Trinity came down here and took on a real human nature to die and shed blood. The Savior must be a man. But he's going to save an infinite number of sinners, that Savior must be an infinite person. And only God is infinite. So he must be God. Jesus Christ is able to save us because he's both man and God. And my friend, are you listening? Right at the very beginning, right at the very beginning, sir, Paul lays right down on top of the desk the great central affirmation of our Christian faith. What is it? That Jesus Christ is God. Or Charles Wesley said, amazing love. How can it be that thou my God should die human being for me? Amazing love. 